Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's interview, we hear from Lucas Lundin, head of the Lundin Group. Over the last 30 years, he's grown a group of resource companies into a combined market cap of over $20 billion. It's not often that we hear from those who measure their net worth in billions, but his perspectives and advice are applicable to anyone in business. He's succeeded where others have failed, and even at times been the only investor in early stage projects. This has led to some huge shareholder returns. Among many accolades, he was also recently inducted into the American Mining Hall of Fame. Along with his commercial success, he also has a distinct concern for social issues and an understanding of the social contracts that he and his group need to succeed in the countries and the markets they work in. I was very interested to hear Lucas speak about how he approaches deals. It's clear that a pillar of their strategy is to always swing for the fences and go for big projects. We talk about a number of subjects from how Lucas approaches government relationships to building partnerships, succession planning within his businesses, and we even get into his personal life. For someone who keeps a relatively private personal profile, I'm honored that he opened up and shared some perspectives with us. A key takeaway from this interview is that building big is weaved into the DNA of the Lundin Group and that their success is built on this eternal optimism. That said, we also talked about some of his biggest mistakes and what he learned from them. This is a shorter interview, but rich in perspective. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. Now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Lucas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to have part of the show and hopefully give us some uh, intel on what we're up to. I'm sure we'll be very good. Lucas, what I'd like to do is start off with a bit of a background about yourself and the Lundin Group, because I know there's a, a really fascinating history, as well as I think the principles and philosophy behind the, the family and everything you're doing. So can I hand it over to you for a bit of history on what you're doing? Yeah, basic history. Um, we've been involved in the resource business over the last 30 years, uh, oil and gas and mining, and we've been probably focusing on larger project over time, you know, so the larger project in uh, different parts of the world. And uh, I think we, our main focus is being have to make sure we get the right contracts with the host government and the right deposits. And I think size matters. So we find the right deposits, we think we can finance them. And if you have the right contract, 
you know, we're if we're much safer. So I think contract size of deposit or body is very, very important. And I think that's key to our success. And, you know, it takes as long as it's been a small project as a big project. You know, it's a question of financing it. I think if we get right paperwork, right jurisdiction, you know, we can make it work. Even if areas people have failed, you know, I think very, very important to get close to the host government and talk to them and explain, you know, it's your oil body, your oil, but we're here to invest and help you out. And we have to pay taxes, but, you know, we have to work together. You can't, we have to tour the same road together. If you don't do that, you can't get a deal done. And that's, I think, has been a key to our success for a long time. I really want to get into that in a little while because I, from the research I did, I've seen how you approach and it's almost a philosophy or, or you know, I mean, some said, uh, oh, maybe that's an interesting spin, but it sounds like how you approach foreign governments and work with them, you really become part of the government and you start to build that social contract. I'd love to get in, into that, but can we go back to the early days of the Lundin Group? As I understand, I think it was Gulfstream Resources was really the first big hit that you and your father hit on. And, and how did you build from there and what came from that? In Gulfstream, I guess my father got involved in the Northwest Dome. It's a big gas field in Qatar. I acquired 20% of it. And this is early 70s. It's before me. And we saw opportunity in a very big gas asset. And I was able to secure a contract with Qatar government. And then he was able to secure a joint venture. It was so big at that time, I was a small entrepreneur. So how he made that success was bringing a joint venture partner, and which worked for Wintershad, which is part of the BSF group, the oil and gas division. And that's how the advanced project over time. But it took very, very long to create success. And over time, I think Dad... I had a hard time bringing forward with Vintershan and they got a new miners team in Gulfstream and then they sold the company in the early 80s. You know, but again, he was thinking big. You know, he couldn't finance all himself. So he's thinking if he could get a joint venture partner, neutral, and that's uh, that's how I decided to move the whole project forward. And I think that philosophy is still here. Is that something where it sounds like there's this deep optimism within the Lundin group and it's like, it's part of the DNA there and going after the blue sky. Are there stories of when you would go after deals where you knew there was a massive deposit there, but you didn't have the money, but still committed to it. And then were able to go out and raise the capital needed. I mean, those must've been, and must always be tense. Especially in oil and gas deals, you know, we have, Especially in Malaysia, Libya, we picked up some, some concessions. They had to give big work commitment. And also what the government expected is a letter of guarantees, you know, that if you didn't fulfill your work commitment, the obligations, and the government has a guarantee for the money. But obviously, in junior companies, it's much tougher. So sometimes happened, we committed what we didn't have. Then we went, financed it, raised it, or find a partner. Yeah, so we had some many touch-and-go moments especially on the oil and gas side internationally. With those touch and go moments, does that blue sky optimism change with the amount of success you have? And, and how does that blue sky optimism change with the economic realities that you have to face? I guess, you know, you told assets are really good, economic reality, okay, but 
obviously as we grow and different companies have you know have a bit you know professional management had less of a risk profile you know so what happens you become more cautious if you take some of our bigger companies yeah they're more careful you're finding you the groups more cautious now yeah I'm a little cautious now and some less entrepreneurship but that i think that happens because the company grows a certain size and if you're not just it's hard to inspire entrepreneurship all the way. Hmm. Interesting. Do you miss those days of the big, of going like swinging for the fences? Uh, no, we're still swinging for fences. Now we can do bigger deals that make more sense, you know. So, you know, we're still swinging for fences on various things that we're doing. Okay. Interesting. And I like that. Like I said, London Gold, you know, we picked this up uh, in Ecuador and that, uh, you know, in a little vehicle that, I think it's had $5 million in cash, and we were able to pick up this fantastic deposit from Kinross, from Fruta and Norted. We built it, you know, we started at $5 million, and we, over, over the last four years, we spent a billion dollars. Yeah, that's actually, yeah. let's jump into what you've done there in Fruta del Norte in the sense that, as I understand, you bought that asset from Kinross because they failed at finding a relationship with the government that would work. And so you were able to step in, you took that risk, and it's paying off incredibly. But how yeah. did you approach that? And what did they miss that you were able to bring to that? I don't know if they missed something, but, you know, I went down there. At first, I talked to Ken Ross, and then I went down to Ecuador and said, you know, again, it was the right time to want a foreign investment. And I said, you know, this is a partnership, you know. I understand you had problems with Kinross, but are you interested seeing foreign investment? I said, you know, if you're going to do this, like I said previously, you're going to have to do this together, because I can't. It's your, your country, your gold. I mean, I, you have to work as partners, but if you, if you argue with each other, it's never going to happen. And, so, and then they said they were very keen on doing this. And I, so then we spent quite a lot of time down there. Ron Hoxton ran it, moved to Quito. You know, so we're very present all the time. And I think Kinross' mistake was maybe not spending enough time in the country, you know, and they got the relationship sideways. Did you move down yourself? No, no, Ron Hochstein moved down. I spent quite a few time in the beginning talking to the government, make sure we get the right contract. And at the Korea government, they were, they were keen on seeing it happen, so it worked quite well. And then and that's a very poor part of Ecuador. So the social license, actually social license is very important in mining business. That's almost important as studies. Uh, and we establish a good uh, relationship with local government and uh, local people around us. And we're able to create, uh, you know, have everybody pool for the project together. You know, have you had some, some up and downs, but in principle, we're able to build on time and under budget. So I'm quite proud of that. And, I think it's, again, coordination with the federal and local government to explain what we're doing. They understand what we're doing, we're up to, and then now it's become a very big success. Interesting. You know, they have to spend some time with the people, power to be, you know, make sure they understand what we're up to. Like, What advice would you have for early stage and even exploration, early stage producing companies who need to really build that social license in country? Are there things that you would never find in an MBA or that you'd never find unless you have, you know, numerous years of experience? What could you share with those management teams? I would say, you know, it's very important uh, who find out, you know, who is 
who pulls the string. And usually towns close by the deposit imported. And also usually very important to the native population around, you know, they always been started their house, trying to build a relation with them. And uh, but they're all different. And then trying to empower them, you know, trying to do as much locally as you can. Uh, I think we spent a hundred million dollars before even in production on local procurement, you know, trying to pull in the region so you know they see benefit quite early. So I think the big mistakes happen when negotiators deal so tough, you know, so the country doesn't see any money to get payback and that's awful. Everybody sees the money all the way along, even if you can't do it. Hmm. Okay. You know, you do you see it. Think of the Togo or original contact or the Togo, the Mongolian government was supposed to see money after payback, blah, 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 blah. So they never saw any money. So, of course, people get anxious. Yeah. 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 That's very important, I think, to show there's some benefit for them. At your level of success and with the companies you've built, what's the time frame that you work in? Time frame, minimum five years. Minimum five years. Adam is working on this project, Rosa Marie. I think we've been running it for the last six, seven, or 10 years. We started doing feasibility two years ago, and now we're ready for construction. We negotiated in terms of our student government. You know, so by that time, it's in production, it's a bit 226. Hmm. So, wow. so long, big mining copper project takes a long time. Yes. And if you make the project good looking enough, you can actually you know, maybe sell half of it or sell a project before going to full production. Right. There's many, there's many ways to capitalize on it. Start to extract some of the value that you've built into exactly. the project over the years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, not everybody wants to go to full production. When I look at the Lundin Group and the work you've done, I thought to myself, it kind of sounds like you have your producers, your core team, your Premier League team, and then under you almost have a farm team of exploration opportunities you go after. Is that a fair assessment? And how do you spend your time when you're looking between exploration and development projects? Exploration, you know, is, that's really long term. So we do, we rather look at projects a bit more advanced. But, you know, that region is kind of interesting, super new belt, and uh, belt we're looking at, but we spend more time on more advanced projects today. You know, we, we like to explore around the assets we have, that we spend quite a lot of money doing that. For greenfield, we don't do that much anymore. It's almost better that junior finds the greenfield, spend a lot of time with good theories, almost better joint venture with them or buy them out. Yeah. yeah because you shorten time scale. Yes. Yeah. And your risk profile there. I can really see yeah. now how your approach then with the London Group is really advanced and is now beyond that and is playing in a much larger playing field, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's very, the greenfield is very lengthy. Can I step back to some? personal questions. Yeah. I'm curious about who you look up to, who's been a mentor to you and, and who you follow. Like, you know, for example, in the, the research I did, I understood your father did a lot of reading on like the Rockefellers or perhaps Carnegie and Ford and big names like that. Who inspires you? Yeah. My the guys are pretty good. Very good in the business. Like Ross Beatty, she's done a very good job. Freeland has some big hits. I mean, those guys, in, they're in the same field as I am. Yeah, you know, so they're very interesting, and of course Fortescue, you know, Forrest has done an unbelievable job in the iron ore business. Yeah, so some very good success story, and Glencore came from nowhere, done a very good job too. Yeah, you know, so 
that's people that look up to me. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, very closely related then and contemporary as yeah, well. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I mean, it's fascinating to read about entrepreneurs and in our business, but you know, the entrepreneurship uh, shifted away from tech industry, from mining and oil, and that is a very big business. It's become much more business as a new world come on. You know, yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, like uh, the Amazon guy, Jeff, is unbelievable. He's done, created in 25 years, a $2 trillion company, 1 million employees. It's very impressive. How do you manage all that and how do they able to build it? You know, it's very interesting new world. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. In our business, it's not that crucial anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, it's... Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I think it's hard to pull good young talent into our business because, you know, they're all to go work for Google and Amazon, you know, Apple, you know, they can create more wealth for them. And plus, harder to explain ourselves for making holes in the ground. Yeah. I've heard a lot about that, that it's becoming more, more of a challenge to find talent for young talent coming into the mining space. And yeah, because it's quite understandable because there's so much, if you're super talented, you know, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do. The one mining becomes quite specialized. Yes. You know, I have to say, I'm new to the mining space. I've always spent my time in technology. And now that I'm yeah. learning more about it through the connections that I've been making, I find it so exciting and so fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. I'm actually surprised there's not more people in it and really think the work you guys are doing is... Yeah, we create, we, we create a lot of work. We create a lot of employment. And we pay a lot of taxes, so we we definitely change regions if you have the right assets. Can we talk about succession and the future of Lundin Group? And the reason why I ask is because succession planning for so many companies, there's a lot of family-owned businesses out there that are facing a succession issue. And I mean, you've been through it, and you're now bringing your sons into the Lundin Group. How has that been for you? And and what is the, the process you go through? You must start really early thinking about this. I think it, yeah, it's more opportunity. You know, we see uh, four sons, uh, three uh, ones managing money, doing a good job, and the three other ones are directly involved in business. And there's been some project to project succession. You know, you know, we have this project, you know, that makes sense for them to come in and run. And, uh, you know, Adam running and Jose Maria, Jack, London and Bluestone and we're London very well in the oil and gas business as chief officer. I think it's opportunity opportunity and like at the right time, you know, that makes sense to at the same time, you know, we don't you know, if still do a good job and sounds do a good job, we don't shy away from hiring professional management. It's not because we call London that, that makes sense to run the company, I think. We put it there in place that we do that because, that, because we think it's done a very good job and understand our spirit. But at the end of the day, when it, if the company gets bigger, we're happy to be big shareholders and uh, be on the board. We don't need to run the company. Hmm. Has there been a planning process behind this? And you know, have you approached this in a very methodical way? Or is it kind no. of like, as I understand, your father just threw you into the deep end and said, go take care of the Middle East and... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not super mechanical. You know, I think it evolves as we go along, and um, what makes sense at the time, you know. And then, then if we bring the projects on, maybe we sell them off, and uh, then we go on and do new things. You know. Mm -hmm. So we have no. It's not mechanical. 
It's very hard to do this mechanic because you make you make a decision at the time that we think makes sense. Being hands-on early on, you learn a lot, you know, enormously about financing, building projects, producing projects. You have enormous experience where you move forward, even if you don't run the companies. Hmm. And we are also, you know, if it makes sense to sell the vehicles, we sell the vehicles. You know, we're not, we're not married to our assets, you know, I think. You know, we're very transaction-oriented, if it makes sense. Okay. Yes. I just want to reflect on a video that I saw, which profiled your father and, and you saying that your father had thrown you in the deep end into the Middle East. And for about 10 years, you learned your way and it was perhaps very costly for him in the errors you would have made, but it was a hell of a learning experience. Yeah, a hell of a learning experience. We learned a lot and lesson learned is to learn from your mistakes. And then you acquire enormous experience. So it's been very helpful that I was thrown into deep end early on in my life because it gave me a lot of experience moving forward. What perhaps were the most influential mistakes you've made that have you know really guided your career? I think one of the big mistakes is uh, I came off a big success called Baja Lumbrera. And at that time, I acquired a project in a copper project in Baja California. And uh, it was a copper cobalt project. And I came off the project and I did exactly the same blueprint I did on Argentina. And this project had a lot of methodological problems. And I didn't stop fast enough. And I kept spending money when I sh- should understand that this is more complicated. Doing this project, the last one, you know, so I came off a, a project we sold for five hundred million dollars, jumped in the next project, project put forty million, and the stock went up to ten bucks and went down to twenty cents. <laughs> so it was a big mistake. And I think the mistake behind that was I didn't understand quickly enough the the nuances, the complication of the orbit itself, and I kept going, kept going, where I should have stopped earlier. You can take a very successful blueprint and then try and replicate it, and sometimes it doesn't work. Right. You're just yeah. perhaps blind from the success before. Exactly. Now that, I mean, where you are within your career, what do you find? What's your biggest fear? I think right now uh, it's quite good. It's quite exciting. I think uh, we're in for... Um, Quite a boom market in the base metals. Gold looks very interesting. Oil and gas been under investment. So, last two, next two, three years have to be quite exciting for our business. And you know, the amount of money being printed, they're going to spend that on infrastructure. So, I'm looking forward. So, I don't, not much fear. The biggest fear, I think, is the wealth gap between have and have not. You know, crazy stock market. Afterwards, I'm unemployed. You know, and we shut everything down. That's uh, civil unrest is the bigger problem. Yeah. It's something that I've thought about too, and I think it is actually a very real concern. And it's, it's not healthy. It's not healthy at all. Yeah. I know I'm jumping way off topic here, but yeah. you had a solution for that. What would that be? How would you approach that? I think infrastructure works going to help a lot because I think that's going to put a lot of people to work, you know, and new road bridges and stuff that we needed to. So, you know, that amount of money we printed, we should spend doing a lot of that, you know. Mm-hmm. We see that's what Chinese are doing a lot. But iron ore is super strong. They're super strong for 10 years. It really surprised me. And again, it's, uh, I think, one way to solve it. You not solve it. One way to 
of the Herr Braut. Look at France. In Paris had thousands of bistro, one owner, average bistro, seven employees. The guys can belly up. The seven guys on the street. You know, that's a small example of many different things in the world. Yeah. I don't think that's good. I think the thing that I always have an issue with is when you look at what's happening there, those people are now without a purpose. And it's like, yeah. it's purpose is worth more than the income. Yeah, another thing is very scary, you know, so the, it's hard for young people to find jobs. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a good college degree and who's going to employ you? Things like that worry me, but that's off topic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. You know, and Lucas, forgive me if I go too far here, but in some work we did for you, I learned that you had some health issues there. I'm curious to know that in your position in life, did that change your perspectives on anything? Did you wake up the next day a little differently, thinking different? Uh, I wake up and say, you know, I have that something called glioblastoma. Adam, what's this everything for? Adam? <laughs> yeah, yeah, glioblastoma. Yes, yeah, so a very, very rare form of brain cancer. And I guess you wake up and said, how are we going to figure this one out? <laughs> so, you know, so you move forward. You can't sit back and feel sorry for yourself. So, you, I mean, you just have to tackle it and then figure out what to do with and uh, get involved. It's fortunate enough I have contacts and have very good people helping me out. You know, but, you know, if you listen to the... To doctors, it's a terminal cancer, which you can't get rid of it. But what you can do is slow it down. So that's what you're mm. working on right now. So, yeah, of course, I mean, I had a, so far, life has been very good to me. You know, you need to throw some curveballs. And I don't think the only thing is to wake up and figure out how to fight it best. You know, sit back and feel sorry for yourself. Definitely going to help you. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's a curveball that comes and you, you tackle it as it comes along. Yeah. yeah. Lucas, I know they're token words. I'm wishing you the best there. But what I hear there is it's almost, I mean, it's this DNA that's in the Lundin group of that every obstacle is an opportunity and you just have to go and take it head on. Yeah, for sure. That's the only way it works. You know, so we're doing some pretty advanced stuff because we have to, because it's a very, 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 very rare form of cancer. I really admire that both that ambition and that approach to life. And I think it's, yeah. you know, it's part of why I want to do these or why I do these interviews is so yeah. more people can hear yeah. your perspectives and others' yeah. perspectives. So I'm looking at time. I want to be certainly respectful of yours. When you look forward to the Lundin Group and where you're going, yeah. I know you're excited about the commodity prices and everything there. Mm-hmm. What do you see for the future? I see the future, you know, the basement looks very good. My brother's going to disagree with me. I think the future for oil and gas over time is going to be less important because, you know, I think if the hydrocarbons will be less important to our society because there's form of transportation, I believe, in electrical vehicles. And so that business is changing. So we have to watch it carefully and see at what point in time we should exit or semi-exit the business. You know, I think that's the changing world. It's quite interesting to see all the big old majors completely caught off guard and doing mm. great, you know, and spending billions of dollars in alternative energy. I understand what they're doing, but, you know, they cut off the, the main asset generating business they have. I mean, like BP, Shell, is so many people are relying on a dividend and they won't be able to pay it over time. So you, know, you have to be careful. The business is changing. It's very fast changing world and you have to adapt quickly. Yeah. And I think big oil and gas completely missed it. 
Fascinating. Yeah. And yeah, so, I mean, perfect. you're, it's, you're seeing base metals and copper and, and everything going. I'm not a gold bug, but gold looks quite good with a mountain. Craziness, money printing, and silver ties. That's see, they're quite strong. And I can't say when you can't hold currencies, no interest on the past. And so, so I'm quite over optimistic of gold right now. No, I'm not the gold bug. I can't. <laughs> 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 it looks like a good business, and I've been involved for a long time. Wow. <laughs> Why is it that you shy away from saying you're a gold bug? Those guys that preach gold is going to go to the moon, gold. That. I'm not the. If gold goes too high, usually it's not it's a bad sign because we have major problems somewhere in the world. You know, to preach too much gold, you become a pessimist because we have major problems somewhere. So that's why yeah, I think a fundamental of gold looks quite good now because of the amount of soft asset currencies coming out. And I think gold is a good hard asset to own today. Yeah. But you know, if it goes too high, we have serious problems. Yeah, yeah. If it goes too high, we might be trading and bartering in chickens before we know it. Exactly, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we can all move to Cuba and do that in Havana. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, hey, listen, let's wrap this up. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, all the best. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.